Michael Cohen was as contrite as he could be. I blame myself for the conduct which has brought me here today, he told the federal judge, and it was my own weakness and a blind loyalty to this man that led me to choose a path of darkness over light. This man, of course, is the person prosecutors call Individual One, otherwise known as President Donald Trump. As Cohn now admits, he committed two federal felonies violating campaign finance laws in coordination with and at the direction of Trump himself. Those crimes, along with others, including tax evasion and lying to Congress, prompted the judge to send Cohen to prison for three years. But the investigation into Cohen's crimes, specifically hush money payoffs to two women who were alleged paramours of the president, is far from over. This week, prosecutors unveiled powerful new evidence backing up these claims from a key co-conspirator, the media company AMI that owns the National Enquirer. Are the walls closing in on individual one? That's our subject on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes is a ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So the uh, legal pressures on the president seem to be escalating by the day. I just got back from the uh, court hearing in which uh, Maria Butina, the uh, Russian agent dispatched to influence uh, American politics, pled guilty. You know, one more shoe dropping here. But the big one is this uh, plea by or non-prosecution agreement by AMI, the parent company of National Enquirer. Well, right now, as we speak, the most kind of perilous legal problem for Donald Trump seems to be that he was involved in this effort to pay off uh, two women he was involved with, with hush money. And according to his uh, former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, he did it to, first of all, Cohen made the payments at the direction and in coordination with Donald Trump, and it was done to affect the 2016 election, which would be a campaign violation and a felony. We've talked a lot on this show about whether Donald Trump would be indicted. That still seems unlikely, but this is evidence of a clear-cut crime. And the issue here in terms of the evidence was, was there anyone other than Michael Cohen who could make this claim? Michael Cohen, who is now an admitted liar as the Trump uh, team always says, and the answer now appears to be yes, David Pecker. David Pecker, of all people, right. Uh, uh, The publisher of the National Enquirer, a guy who had been a a close ally of Donald Trump for years, his compadre, they uh, 
actually discussed his plans for running for president right from the get-go. Uh, in August of 2015, Pecker meets with Trump and they uh, discuss what possible embarrassing stories could come out about uh, Donald Trump's uh, apparently serial infidelity. And Pecker tells him, no problem, we'll take care of it. We'll engage in catch and kill, a practice by which uh, tabloid publications buy up stories from various figures. And then under the understanding that they're actually never going to publish them, they just buy the rights so the accuser can't go anyplace else and air her or his right. story. And then, of course, there seems to be a, elaborate efforts to cover up the payments and the, all these arrangements. There's shell companies set up. There's vouchers that are you know made up. So it really does look like a conspiracy to affect the election. And mind you, this was happening after, as I understand it, after the uh, Hollywood Access videotape had come out. So well, that's the Stormy Daniels payment, right? That's the, the story, but that, but right, exactly. Right. But still, that's part of the that is part of the same deal. And so the question that a lot of people will ask is, well, could this have affected the election? After all, people already knew. When the Hollywood Access tape came out, Trump seemed to be able to blow by that. He still won. But if this had come out as well, um, and remember, you know, Trump won like three states by a margin of 80,000 votes or something. So this could have been decisive. It could have had a real impact. And I think that's going to be one of the things that people debate. It really goes to the question of Donald Trump's legitimacy in terms of winning this election. But one other thing I want to just linger on for a second, I just keep thinking about this, this kind of exquisite irony. Donald Trump, of course, is the president who calls the mainstream media, you know, practitioners of fact-based journalism, fake news all the time. And now, of course, if you believe prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, he's been incredibly cozy for all these years with none other than the owners of the National Enquirer and the Star, Talk about fake Talk news. Talk about fake huh? news. You know, <laughs> right, they were practically, yeah. in this instance, they were practically acting as an arm of the Trump campaign. I mean, right. so Donald Trump clearly benefiting from the ultimate fake news in, uh, you know, in AMI and, and their tabloids. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, listen, I can't think of a uh, greater irony than the fact that uh, David Pecker the, uh, and the National Enquirer, which did so much to promote Trump's candidacy, it could be uh, the entities that actually bring him down, which is why I think we'll call this episode uh, Donald Trump's Pecker problem. Uh, <laughs> look, uh, we should take note. The president is swinging back. He is uh, just uh, tweeted as we uh, record this. I never directed Michael Cohen to break the law. He was a lawyer and he is supposed to know the law. So it was up to Cohen to figure out what the intricacies of campaign finance law uh, were. But uh, not only that, we've got Rudy Giuliani lashing out and venting to our own Hunter Walker. And they had quite a conversation this week about uh, Michael Cohen and related matters. So we're going to bring in Hunter first. Before we get to our uh, prime guest, Neil Katyal, former acting solicitor general, deputy solicitor general under President Obama, who has uh, some very sharp insights into the whole question of the meaning of these campaign finance law violations and what could or could not flow from them. So let's Let's uh, let's start with Hunter. Sure. 
Hey, Hunter, welcome back yet again to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me, guys. You're our uh, uh, favorite guest. So look, you're sitting in the newsroom uh, in the Yahoo office, I guess on Wednesday, and the phone rings, and it's Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, and I've had, I guess you could say, a cell phone flirtation with Rudy for some time now. I mean, you know, since he's become a member of the president's legal team, I've tried to reach out to him a bunch, and, and I typically find that, you know, you'll ask him a question over text message, and he gets back a couple days later or, or a couple hours later, sort of out of time and also out of spell check. <laughs> There's often sort of weird right. mistakes. In the okay, so now this is, um, this is the day Michael Cohen is pleading guilty uh, or is being sentenced to federal prison for, uh, among other things, campaign finance violations he committed at the direction of Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani's client, and also the day that uh, David Pecker apparently uh, had entered into a plea agreement, a non-prosecution agreement, to back up Cohen's story. What does Rudy tell you? Yeah, so this came a couple hours after the sentencing uh, came out, and it was not prompted by anything. I mean, I had not called him. He called me. And, you know, at the top of the call, I had to, like, scramble to get my recorder on. But at the top of it, he started basically blasting Cohen's behavior and calling it shocking and sort of unethical for an attorney, specifically focusing on the fact that Cohen had, um, you know, regularly recorded Donald Trump when he was his lawyer. Then he kind of went on. I started asking him about the sort of president's shifting stories and explanations for the Stormy Daniels payment which he's now calling a simple private transaction. And I asked Rudy if that could really fly, this idea that it was a private thing and not designed to interfere with the election. And Rudy kept doing this interesting thing where he would say, it wasn't that, but even if it was, it wouldn't be a crime. So, you know, he kind of (laughs) said, well, this was just a private thing, but even if it was, the John Edwards case shows that this type of campaign contribution can't be considered a campaign contribution because it was something he would have done personally anyway. Before we get to that clip, because that is a do you know the answer to that question or Mike, do you? I mean, the point he's making is that since he had a kind of a private reason to pay off these women, in other words, to protect himself and his family from these revelations, the fact that he may have also had a political reason to do it, i.e., to not to hurt his chances of getting elected, don't really matter. That, as I think Giuliani put it, the campaign finance board, by which I think he must have meant the FEC, has yes. s- has said that that's the case. Is that true? Is he right? I don't know the um, answer to that. You know, I uh, I was talking with Larry Noble, the uh, general, the former general counsel of the FEC, who we've had as a guest on Skullduggery, and uh, he's offered to come on again. And I think the answer really is unclear. There's no exact precedent to this. The closest, of course, is the John Edwards case, in which the Justice Department brought criminal charges against John Edwards for payments to uh, Real Hunter during his presidential run. And of course, John Edwards was acquitted in that that case, and this is interesting, there were some FEC commissioners or former FEC commissioners who the Edwards legal team had lined up to make a presentation that these payments would not have been considered legitimate campaign expenses by the FEC. But, you know, these were individual commissioners who had been hired, presumably, by the uh, Edwards legal team to make this argument. I don't think there is a clear 
clear legal grounding from the FEC as to whether these qualify as campaign payments or not. Yeah, well, that just goes to show that I think that a good Trump defense team would be able to muddy up the waters uh, with all of these ambiguities. But let's let's go to the audio tape and listen to a clip from that uh, conversation that Hunter had with uh, Rudy Giuliani. What about this notion that the president put forward, that it was sort of a simple private transaction? Do you think that flies, that it wasn't an attempt to influence the election? I think, I think, uh, well, I, I, I don't, I, the president's not a lawyer. Right. The simple fact is that it's not a criminal violation of the campaign finance law. The Edwards case kind of settled that. They tried exactly the same theory against Edwards in order to, you know, sensationalize the case. Mm-hmm. Edwards, they, they couldn't succeed in that. The campaign finance board has indicated that payments like this, which even if they're for some campaign purpose, if they're also for a personal purpose, and you would have made them anyway, mm-hmm. are not campaign contributions. Mm-hmm. So this is a, now there are some people like them who believe they are, but most people don't think so. And you hardly prosecute somebody for a question above violation of the law. And how, how do they also become campaign finance prosecutors? Mm-hmm. You need a special prosecutor for campaign finance? Yeah. I mean, they started with collusion. After two years and two investigations, two and a half years and two investigations, they have nothing on collusion. Then they started speaking about obstruction. They've got nothing on obstruction, and Article 2 prevents them from doing anything about obstruction. Mm-hmm. Now they're doing campaign finance with questionable violations that have been discredited in the prior case. Mm-hmm. And they're letting the guy blatantly lie to a judge and not correcting it. So I think they're proving what the president said at first. There are a bunch of angry Democrats who are on a witch hunt. They're not investigating a crime. They're trying to find anything they can to dirty up a person. Well, it sounds like the uh, talking points uh, for the president are pretty well honed at this point and expressed there by Rudy. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Rudy's doing a couple things that are a little bit questionable in his um recounting of all this. And I think one is something that you you were just touching on, Mike, which is that the John Edwards case left this whole situation on questionable ground. And and Rudy does concede that. But, you know, um, John was acquitted of one count of a payment that was made after the election. The five other counts resulted in a mistrial. So this is really an open thing. And Rudy sort of implied that particularly with a president, you can't bring what he called a quote-unquote questionable crime to court. I think that's, that's not as defined as he would like it. But also, they're focusing on the campaign finance charges, and they're saying, you know, there's no collusion, there's no collusion, and why, you know, that's why the special prosecutor has pushed off to campaign finance. And that no collusion thing is the biggest refrain you hear from the president, all of his legal men, so to speak. And I think, you know, it's really questionable in this spate of legal documents we've seen all of them indicate that there are multiple, multiple open investigations surrounding President Trump's inner circle. So we might not have seen Mueller's collusion charges yet, but I don't necessarily agree with the Trump team and with Mayor Giuliani that you know those charges are not necessarily coming and in the future. And there are a couple of other things that I want to point out here. So he says, he says at one point, you need a special prosecutor for campaign finance violations. Well, it's not a special prosecutor. It's the Southern it's prosecutors in the Southern right. District of New York. Those are career prosecutors. Yes, it may have originally been uncovered by Mueller, but he did the right thing, I think, which is he saw that it was beyond the scope of his, mand- his mandate. And so he 
referred to the Justice Department, and they made a decision to investigate. And then the other thing he does when some people think that the, the for Mueller, the biggest legal peril is is obstruction of justice. And he just flatly says, well, you can't go after him on obstruction because of Article 2 of the Constitution. That is a novel theory. I mean, I think maybe that goes back to the idea that that he has the absolute, as the head of the executive branch, he's got absolute authority to fire Jim Comey, uh, the former FBI director. But look, not if he has corrupt intent to obstruct a criminal investigation into his own activities. So he just kind of blithely throws that out there. And that's I just don't then think that that's supportable. The bottom line, I think that we want to sort of leave it with here uh, at this moment is that snapshot of where we are as we speak, the president's former personal lawyer, his former campaign chairman, his former deputy campaign chairman, his former national security advisor are all convicted felons. For a guy who was uh, prided himself on he was going to bring nothing but the best to Washington, he's a guy who, as we speak, was surrounded by convicted, now convicted criminals. And since most of them are now cooperating in investigations against the president, it is why, what we said at the start of the show, the legal threats are escalating and the walls uh, appear to be closing in a bit on Donald Trump. Thank you, Hunter. Thank you. We are joined now by Neil Kutchell, former Deputy Solicitor General, Professor of National Security Law at Georgetown, and uh, ubiquitous cable guest these days. Neil, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks. It's awesome to be here with both of you. We are truly at an unusual moment, to say the least, to have uh, federal prosecutors accusing somebody of committing crimes at the direction of the president. How extraordinary is this? Um, it is mind-blowingly extraordinary. I mean, I think this happened when we, you and I were last together on one of those cable shows um, when it came out. And, you know, I said then, and I still believe this is an extraordinary thing. It's really un virtually unprecedented in our lifetime. You'd have to go back to the Nixon-Watergate situation in which the president was an unindicted co-conspirator to find something similar. And the Justice Department weighs its words very carefully. And this document is not produced by Mueller. This is produced by the Southern District of New York prosecutors. Mm -hmm. And it says in that document that Cohen has said, but it's they're relying on other evidence as well, not just mm -hmm. Michael Cohen, mm -hmm. that the president directed the commission of these very serious felonies. So that's a big, big deal. So they haven't officially called him an unindicted co-conspirator. Why not? And what would it take to go from the accusations that they've made in the sentencing memorandum to actually being officially an unindicted co-conspirator? So, you know, unindicted co-conspirator obviously has a lot of political valence. I don't think it has any legal significance either way before uh, the U.S. Attorney's Manual would require, before naming someone, identifying someone in a derogatory way, in such a derogatory way, there has to be a real assessment that more likely than not that is actually the truth of what's going on. So what that means is they had to sit there and say, Cohen is a, not always, a, shall we say, a truthful figure. And, uh, but they <laughs> They, don't they made that pretty clear yeah, yeah. in the sentencing so, memo. Exactly. Yeah. But they're, they're obviously relying on other stuff to get them over that uh, threshold of saying it's more likely than not 
that the president directed the commission of these felonies. But as I say, legally, it doesn't really matter. Obviously, you know, in the media and, you know, and so on, using those words has an explosive connotation. But for all practical purposes, to me, I read them as the same basic thing, which is they are saying in a sworn document, and that's why this is so extraordinary. This is not like, oh, someone told us this. They're saying, we believe as prosecutors, after all of this investigation, it is more likely than not that the president ordered the commission of felonies. Okay, so let's take this in two parts. One is the evidence, and then the second part would be what flows from that or what the remedies would be. But when it comes to the evidence, it seems to me that there's still a lot we don't know. Michael Cohen has said he made these payments to influence the presidential campaign. That was what was in his head. The presidential he election, yes. The presidential election. And he can obviously speak to what was in his head. The question becomes, what's in Donald Trump's head when he directs Michael Cohen <clears throat> to make these hush money payoffs? And we don't really know that, do we, from this document? We shouldn't know it from this document because it's a document, after all, about right. Michael Cohen. That's right. what the whole point of the document is. Right. The Trump stuff is part of the story but not the purpose of the filing on Friday, which, after all, was just to tell judges what should Michael Cohen be sentenced to. So you're absolutely right. Donald Trump has the defense, which John Edwards tried. Which is to and say, succeeded, yeah. and succeeded, which is the only precedent for a prosecution for a, a, for a violation a such as this. Let's delve into he this a acquitted. little bit. I right. mean, let's delve into this a little bit. So, you know, first of all, Trump made these payments right before the election took right. place, right? right? And that's why you think Michael Cohen's statement that this is for the primary purpose of influencing the election has so much credibility. By contrast, there were no such witnesses in the Edwards investigation. Indeed, the two key witnesses had both passed away. I think one was like 101 years old. Right. The other was quite elderly and, and sick as well. So you didn't have any witnesses. You didn't have the contemporary mm -hmm. evidence that you have here. You don't have the timing. And the timing here is significant in two ways. It's not just that the payments happened right before the 2016 election. It's also that these affairs, it's not like they Trump had just had these affairs. These are actually from back in 2006. Right. And indeed, one of them, uh, Ms. Daniels, had come forward in 2011. So if this was really about protecting his family, one would have thought those payments would have occurred then, not five years later. Look, Trump does have a defense here. Right. It's just, I can tell you as a litigator, yeah. it's not the kind of defense I'd like to walk into court with. And even with Edwards, I mean, that went to trial. Right. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, so, on Edwards, yeah. it seems to me that even though the government lost what that prosecution vindicated was that this was a valid theory of prosecution, right? That a campaign contribution, hush money under the right circumstances can be can constitute a campaign contribution. Absolutely, Danny. I, you know, you're the first person I know to have made this point. Maybe others have and I've missed it. But I think it's really important because the president tweeted, oh, the Edwards defense, the Edwards defense. The Edwards defense is no defense. It's like saying totally cleared, as he did the other day after the Cohen sentencing memo. The Edwards defense, the Edwards precedent, is a bad one for him because a judge allowed to go to the jury the idea that hush money payments to mistresses can be campaign finance violations. And whatever you think about it in the Edwards case, think about the magnitude of how important these payments were in the context of the razor-thin 2016 election. If the American public knew 
either this information come out from Daniels and so on, it very well could have tipped the election. Well, of course, so they close. did. They, they uh, did know that they, he had bragged they, about assaulting women. And yeah, they, they well, knew well, quite a bit. Maybe it did move votes. They, so, they did, you know. you know, the theory of the case here is that Michael Cohen, as the prosecutor said, acted in the shadows, struck a blow to one of the core goals of federal campaign finance laws, transparency, that these were campaign expenditures. So if the Trump campaign had reported publicly on its FEC reports, hush money payments, $130,000 to Stormy Daniels, would that have been a valid campaign expense? So permitted by the FEC. I don't know if it's valid or not, but it certainly wouldn't have but the transparency problem. But if it's so not a valid campaign expense, how can you make the argument that it's a campaign expenditure? Well, I think the fundamental goal of the campaign finance reform law is transparency to allow sunlight into the process. So regardless of whether something may be questionably an expenditure or not, the first thing you have to do is disclose it. In the, to the FEC and then therefore for the American public. And that's why I think the president was so careful in the campaign to try and hide these. You could say, well, you know, the Access Hollywood tape and the like, but there is something really remarkable about a, a man paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to silence a woman from telling the story. And he obviously didn't want it to go get public, and that's why he went through all of these machinations. And these machinations are not just important for campaign finance. I think we're going to hear in the months to come, weeks to come, maybe days to come, these are also important for tax fraud and other reasons, because this money had to be paid from somewhere. Right. Where was the money paid from? It was paid from by the Trump organization right. and signed by the CFO, authorized by the CFO Weiselbrod, right. who is now cooperating Right. with those very same prosecutors. Right. And I should point out, you know, they create a shell company, they phony uh, goose up phony bookkeeping, they list things yeah. uh, as retainer yeah. payments and IT expenditures, the, yeah. when it was really just a way of funneling money to Cohen right. for his activities doing this. Right. They were he, he was not just reimbursed for making the payments, he was handsomely remunerated right. uh, for right. these payments. And the other thing that's yeah. important to say about the transparency element of the campaign finance law is that one of the things that Trump's defenders have been saying, and maybe Trump himself, is that I'm the candidate. I can spend as much money as I want. There's no limitation on the amount of money if I'm self-funding. Mm -hmm. But that does not go to the issue of disclosure. Under Absolutely. the law, they have to disclose. They didn't. Absolutely. And for a very good reason, which is you certainly don't want a presidential candidate or any candidate to be possibly beholden to some interest that we don't know about. And here, obviously, there's a whole separate investigation, which I, I'm sure we'll talk about later, about whether he was beholden to the Russians. But the a whole idea of the campaign finance laws is if you can bring it out into the public and let people decide, that's a lot better than kind of dark money or whatever being influencing a presidential campaign. Yeah. It seems to me the best defense that Trump could come up with is that he could show he's made lots of payments like this before. That it's like paying off hush money to various women who make allegations against yeah. him is just part of his uh, cost of doing business. I mean, heavens me, I think I'm a pretty good lawyer, but yeah. I would hate to be his defense <laughs> lawyer just on the facts. I think, you know, he's a, yeah. obviously a problematic client for any number of other reasons. But just the facts here are really, really tough for him. And uh, there is, I think a pretty strong likelihood, in fact, I'm pretty certain that if this were any other individual, he'd be indicted at this point. Obviously, right, that's a serious question about whether yeah. he'd ever be able to make these defenses in a court of law, because right. we don't know that he'll ever 
get to that point, given the uh, constitutional concerns about whether yeah. a sitting president can be indicted. So, so, so let's talk about the yeah, remedies. Can, can might... a president be indicted? So I think the Justice Department has said in two different opinions. In right. general, the answer to that is no. Right. And the idea behind that, you know, I've taught these opinions now 20 times in constitutional law. And I think the best way to convey that, because a lot of Americans are like, how could that possibly be? But the, I think the reasoning of the Justice Department, the best way to think about it is, imagine it's 1863 and a prosecutor in South Carolina indicts Abraham Lincoln or 1861, well, whatever, been, 1861, yeah, when, but right before the shots on Fort Sumter. Right. The idea that a prosecutor could undo the national election in some way is obviously deeply constitutionally problematic, and that's what those opinions are getting to. There are three problems for Trump with respect to those opinions. The first is they don't necessarily apply to a circumstance in which the actual crime may have involved him uh, obtaining the presidency in the first place. So it'd be one thing if you're dealing with a crime as in 73 or in 2000 in which maybe it doesn't go to whether or not the person became president in the first place. But this one arguably mm -hmm. does. So that's one thing. The second thing... Although that strikes me more as an argument in the impeachment context than in, it's in the both, legal but context. It's in both. And let, you know, so let I mean, me just get the other two arguments right. out, and then we can talk mm -hmm. about them. The second one is that the two opinions are really about the trial and how distracting a trial would be for the president. And obviously, that's a little tough here because this president isn't exactly you know, in the Oval Office 18 hours a day. I think he spends one out of every three days on the golf course. But leave that aside, I think that the big problem is that doesn't deal with the indictment piece of this. It only deals with the trial piece. And Walter Dellinger and others like Ted Olson have pointed out that, well, the constitutional arguments are really good against the trial. They're not very good against the indictment piece. So maybe that he could be indicted. So you just indict and you hold that in abeyance exactly. until right. he's out of office. Exactly. And, then th and that, that also would help the government with statute of limitation problems because this, I think, in this particular in the campaign finance context, I think it's a five-year statute of limitations. So if he's reelected after 2022, he'd be in the clear unless they indicted first. Well, right? I, d I disagree with that. So you're right. The statute of limitations is five years. And if he were reelected, it would put him past that five-year period. But I think it is a bad constitutional argument to say, I'm the president. I get immunity from prosecution while I'm sitting president, while I'm the sitting president. And the statute of limitations applies to me just like anyone else. That is literally putting the president above the law. That cannot possibly be the Constitution of the United States, which is built entirely on a rebellion against King George III's powers in this, in this so respect. So just like who would make that call that you could indict, but then the process is frozen? Who's going to decide <laughs> that, you know, you can go no further than indicting the president. So the Justice Department traditionally has given those powers to the attorney general or to the acting attorney general in a circumstance yeah. where the attorney general is recused. Here, bizarrely, we don't actually know who is the attorney general. I mean, and, and I say that not just for the reasons I've developed at length with George Conway, uh, we that we have a, talk about that, that we have a fake attorney yeah. general. Right. But, but beyond all that, this acting Attorney General Whitaker has taken all sorts of positions on the Mueller investigation when he was on cable news. And there was an ethics question about whether he could actually supervise this investigation or not. He's been there now for a month. 
And we don't know the answer to that, whether the ethics office has cleared him or not. So we literally don't know who is the attorney general in the most sensitive criminal investigation certainly in the last 40 years. Well, it's not, not like anybody else is the attorney general. Well, I mean, it, well, it would be Rod Rosenstein then. So if he is recused, then it would go to the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein. And I think that would give all Americans uh, a measure right. of, of some comfort if it is him. Right. Can I go back to the point you were making, you know, Walter Jellinger making this yeah. argument that the indictment piece of it may be stronger than the trial piece in terms of the ability to take yeah. action. And taking it further, yeah. you can't have a president imprisoned and still perform mm, his duties in office, right. right? which is what flows from a yeah. conviction at trial. Some of the language from, this is the 1973 decision uh, in the Nixon context, and the first there are two paragraphs. The first one goes directly to this point about trial and necessity to defend a criminal trial and to attend court in connection with it would interfere with the president's unique official duties, most of which cannot be performed by anyone else. So that's right on point. Yeah. Then there's a second paragraph that says to wound him by a criminal proceeding is to hamstring the operation of the whole government apparatus, both in foreign and domestic affairs. It is not to be forgotten that the modern presidency under whatever party has had to assume a leadership role undreamed of in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Criminal proceeding, I mean, that could just be indictment, right? Or do you interpret that as it has to be as a trial and the entire process? I think it's best understood that wounding that you're talking about is much more about the trial than it is about the accusation. It's certainly the case that the accusation is going to produce something of a wound. I don't dispute that. But I don't know if it rises to a level of such constitutional significance that it would bar an indictment from being made against the president. And I say that because, you know, there's a big intervening event after 1973, and that's the Paula Jones case in uh, that you're very familiar, both yeah. of you, I guess, yeah. you're both yes. major players in that in, in 1997, where the Supreme Court was confronted with this question in the civil context, and Bill Clinton said, hey, you can't proceed against me as an ordinary individual. That's going to wound me, and the trial is going to be distracting to me. And the Supreme Court said, Okay, maybe some of the trial aspects might be deferred. Ordinary case management by federal judges and so on can deal with that. But you've got to proceed against the president just like anyone else. And here we're talking about not just some civil allegation of a problem, but we're talking about incredibly serious crimes. And I think that there's going to be a pretty good argument that the Dellinger position is right. You know, there's another argument, which is, there may be conduct by a president that rises to the level of impeachment that is not necessarily criminal, but there also be maybe may crimes that do not rise to the level of impeachment. I think Ron Rotunda, mm -hmm. who did an opinion for Ken Starr yeah. saying that a president could be indicted, the example that he used was, well, you know, if the president punches a heckler, you're not going to have an impeachment you know, trial over that. But if you don't do anything, then the president is above the law. Yeah, I mean, do you do you think that's a valid yeah? I think argument? that I, th I think that's right, and you know, it demonstrates Ron had really quite quite a wit about him, and he actually prophesied something that <laughs> we've actually seen happen. <laughs> um, so, 
Uh, to be fair, uh, the president uh, said Trump advocated. Yeah, he, actually, not sure he, he directed the commission. He directed the commission of someone else <laughs> punching. Yeah. Was, exactly. was was punched in coordination and at the direction <laughs> yeah, exactly. of individual one. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, let me also just bring the conversation to the third point, which is the third problem with this Canton Dyed sitting president. That only applies to the federal government. These two opinions, right. and as we were talking about earlier, some of these crimes are actually state crimes, not just federal ones, and that includes some of the fraud and tax fraud and right. the other stuff that Weiselbrod's engaged in. And we now know that the New York Attorney General has been investigating some of the allegations around the Trump Organization and the like. So, um, you know, I suspect that uh, even if the president's been told by his uh, lawyers, um, in quotes, that uh, that he has a get-out-of-jail-free card, I don't know that it's going to work quite the way he thinks by it By the does. way, that, that second OLC opinion was written by Randy Moss in the last year of the Clinton administration. Correct. It does deal with the Jones Absolutely. versus Clinton civil trial issue. But uh, how did this come to be written in 2000? Why was it being written then? I was there for part of it, but I, I don't know the motivations. I suspect it was an opinion for the White House counsel. You can look up the first page. You've got it. Just it just says but, uh, it doesn't actually illuminate yeah, on that score. So, it's so, a, it's a yeah, lengthy, well-written opinion yeah. that, that concludes the president cannot be indicted or uh, tried. Right. But I think, it, you know, really, Randy, who's an excellent, excellent yeah. lawyer then and now judge uh, in D.C., I think it is really focused on the trial and the distractions of trial aspects far more than it is on that initial question that Dellinger has isolated. So I suspect we'll be hearing much more about that. The last line, our view remains that a sitting president is constitutionally immune from indictment and criminal prosecution. That's the last line. All right. So if he's not indicted or, you know, uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, the only other remedy is impeachment, right? So, well, I think there's two Is things. Is this an impeachable offense? I do think it's an impeachable offense, absolutely. I Why? mean, it's a high crime and misdemeanor, and as Charles Black's book on impeachment, which is, I think, considered pretty much the gold standard, said, there are very few limits on what is a high crime and misdemeanor, but mm-hmm. certainly a felony like this, I think, mm-hmm. would qualify, particularly one here, which is about campaign, the integrity of, you know, of the presidential election in the first place. So, I mean, it seems to me squarely within the zone of that. But I think there's an important other point, which is even if you take the view a president can't be indicted, Donald Trump has to know, looking at this, and we haven't even talked about the Russia stuff, but just on this or the obstruction or witness tampering or all the other things, he's got to know he's a pretty reasonable target for criminal prosecution in 2021 if, if he were to serve out his term. He's got one card to play at this point, and that card is the same card that Spiro Agnew played in 1973, which is, I'm facing serious jail time. I care a lot about myself, and that's the way he thinks. The one card to play is to say to prosecutors, I'll resign in exchange for no jail time. That's essentially the Agnew deal. And so even if he knows that he won't be indicted while in office, he's got a fear for what happens the day after. So cut a deal, and then part of that deal presumably would be um, asking Mike Pence to pardon him. Yes, you could do it with Pence, but I think you'd have to do it with more than Pence because, as I'm saying, there are state charges here that Pence can't pardon from. The pardon, the Constitution's pardon power is limited only to federal offenses and not to impeachment. That's in the text. Let me ask you just a very practical question and staying on the alleged campaign finance violations and the hush money. This is a case being prosecuted by the Southern District of New York. These are career prosecutors. They're not part of the Mueller investigation. 
how do they get from A to B? I mean, like they don't typically, is there any mechanism for them to write a report and send it up to Congress? Do they write a report and give it to Mueller? How does that play out? I think we're in uncharted territory here. It is a little bit uncharted. I mean, I think the first thing to say is, boy, you know, I was up uh, on Friday night with almost tears in my eyes because of thinking about these folks, the men and women in that office, and how they stood up for what the institution of the Justice Department is all about. Incredible what they have done and what they continue to do every day. Now, how do they do their job? I don't think they can issue reports in general. I mean, after all, prosecutors don't do that. The special counsel report is a very limited exception, which when we were crafting the regulations back in 1999, we spent a lot of time thinking about because it is such a deviation from the way the department operates. Normally, the department operates by speaking through an indictment. And by, by the way, and you wrote these regulations, did, right? Yeah, so I did. Under and, Eric Holder. And, yeah, and Janet Reno. They were my bosses. And um, certainly with a ton of input, it took a year and a half to do. And we got input from everyone in the department and then on the Hill, prominent Republicans, even Ken Starr. You know, so there was a lot of input put into these things, and a report was put in there. There isn't an analog in general Southern District of New York prosecutions. So I think they will write a memo to the Attorney General as the U.S. Attorney's Manual requires because they, if they do want to seek the indictment of a sensitive person like the President or indeed the President's son or something like that, that would go up to the Attorney General or the Basically acting Attorney a, General. a pros memo as they call it, exactly. right? Exactly. Right? So, a prosecution memo. Right. And, you know, undoubtedly there would be a meeting with the Attorney General, whoever the Attorney General actually is in this circumstance. Again, we don't know. Um, and the Attorney General could try and stop that. Now, it's hard to stop something once the prosecutors come to you. I mean, I know when I sat in the chair as acting solicitor general, when people come to you with a fully baked out plan and a lot of great reasoning behind it, even if you your heart may be in the other place, it's very, very hard to do. And so I, my suspicion right now is what's going on is they're still in the fact gathering stage of the investigation. And uh, at some point, they're going to present all of that to the attorney general, whoever that may be. Aren't they going to have to try to get Trump's uh, testimony? Uh, I think they'd almost certainly try. Now, he, again, he's got a pretty robust view of his own powers, and he, you know, including saying that he doesn't have to sit for subpoenas and so on, evidently, so if if those leaks are to be believed. And so he could say, I'm not going to cooperate, I'm not going to talk, I might even take the Fifth Amendment, and so on. So he's got avenues to try and preclude so, that. But ordinarily, you're absolutely right, a prosecutor would seek that. So let me take you forward to uh, the impeachment scenario. Jerry Nadler, I remember being quite eloquent during the uh, Clinton impeachment, making the case that concealment of a sexual affair is not an impeachable offense. And at its core, isn't this what it's about, concealing a sexual liaison in the past with Stormy Daniels. And is that the kind of case that um, Jerry Nadler and the House Democrats want to make for the impeachment of the president? Right. I don't want to speak to uh, Nadler and what he's thinking or, or said before, but boy, it sure seems to me entirely different than concealment of an affair or something like that. I mean, it'd be one thing if well, the what, it'd be one thing the if the Southern District of New York were trying to indict the president for 
you know, concealing an affair from the public or, or from his wife or something like that. This is it's the way in which he did it that is right. so damning. Well, the allegations I mean, against Clinton is he lo- he perjured himself in a deposition uh, in a civil case. Yeah. That was a crime too. It, it was, but uh, but, it but the judgment well, was it was not a crime serious enough right. to justify impeachment. And, and here's where I think the president has to worry so much about that filing on Friday because at page 23 there is a page and a half, a little more than a page about how damaging. This crime was. This isn't like there. Page there's, 23. Exactly. Right. There, right. We, so you're always a step ahead of me. <laughs> right. And about the integrity of the elections process, there's rhetoric in there like people are going door to door, knocking, right. trying to get votes. And here you've got a guy who is, you know, doing an end run around that process with his money and the like. And they paint this as incredibly serious. So even if maybe Nadler doesn't, but I right. think the president right now has to fear right now. The prosecutors certainly see it this way. And whether or not they indict, it may form the basis of what might be in a report or things like that. And that may, of course, influence the way in which the impeachment proceedings unfold should they unfold. But it seems to me that the argument for impeachment is something you were saying before, which was that this was information that was withheld from the American public. (laughs) when they went to the polls right, or the, concealed this, the, from this the, is not the affair itself the this is well, the campaign finance violation so that's i think it's the mechanism by which the concealment happened that's so important i i think it would be a you know i i think it would be a terrible case for anyone to press if it were just the concealment of someone's private behavior it's far far more than that and, because uh, it was money paid to conceal that private behavior. And borrowed, right. and then there was the right. ta- potential tax right. fraud around it, and the shell corporations that were structured, yeah. and all the Look, other Look, I, I do want to just point out that uh, you know there is precedent for concealment of sexual affairs by presidential candidates, most recently Bill Clinton, who, by the way, did arrange to get a state job for Jennifer Flowers mm-hmm. in 1991 in the run-up for president, and then... In the taped conversations between Clinton and, and Flowers pre her coming forward, she brings that up to Clinton, and Clinton says, "Oh yeah, I never thought of that." But then he adds, "If they ever asked me, you'd talk. If you talk to me about it, it being getting her a job, mm-hmm. paying her, having money paid to her with taxpayer expense, you can say no." So you know, one can argue that um, there is some precedent there. It's not exactly the same thing. No two situations are. Ever so, are, but yeah. so Neil, before we let you go, we want to make well, sure we you have. got to ask about something else. Well, I'm going to. Well, yeah, uh, I, I want to make sure Bill we have. Barr. Yeah, I wanna, <laughs> well, I want to make sure we have some time to talk a little bit about Russia. But the segue to Russia is President Trump announces intentions to nominate Bill Barr, the former Attorney General, to be his new Attorney General, and there've been Democrats, you know, right out of the bat, calling for him to recuse himself from the Russia investigation because some of the comments he's made defending Trump and saying that it would be valid for him to go after his rival Hillary Clinton, so on and so forth. And Iskoff and I did a story uh, that came out this weekend that um, reported that uh, Barr actually had interviewed with Trump to be Trump's primary defense attorney uh, in the, in the in interviewed might be a little beyond what right, we well reported. They, that they brought him into the White House to meet with Trump and Trump asked him about his interest in being his defense lawyer and then uh, Barr demurred but then talk about their efforts to recruit Barr for that job continued into 
this year into 2018. Do you think that's grounds for recusal? So so first of all, I think Barr is a a big step up from uh, Matthew Whitaker just by dint of the fact he's going to go through the constitutional process of advice and consent. So he's a step up. I don't think that's saying that much. I think my shoe would be a step up from, <laughs> from Matthew Whitaker. Uh, but uh, but uh, uh, so th- this does trouble me, though, uh, that, you know, it depends on what the facts are. Um, but certainly if I interviewed for any position, any client before I came into the Justice Department, I recused from all of those. And I think that is a very, very standard practice. And I certainly trust that Barr would do the same thing if he actually did interview. I just don't understand exactly what happened. And the reason for that is there's no interview you can ever have for a job or for a client in which some sensitive information is not disclosed. It's impossible, really, right. because you know there's, it's just the nature of what you're doing is actually getting something private and sharing something private about your views, unless the interview is about baseball or something like that. But that's not going to be the case if you're hiring someone to be your lawyer. So if it all actually happened, I think he has to recuse. I think he will recuse. Um, I don't doubt that. Recuse from the Russia investigation? I think he has to. Uh, I mean, if that's what he was being interviewed for. Now, again, if he was being interviewed for some other unrelated job, you know, DOD general counsel or something, no, I don't think so. Well, the account is that he was asked if he would be willing to do it. And certainly there were other discussions that must yeah, have been Yeah, there were multiple discussions he had with White House that. aides right. about doing that particular job. Right. And right. he kept rebuffing them. But he ended up meeting with Donald Trump for the purposes of right. having this discussion at least. So I think at the Senate hearing, I think this all has to be made absolutely crystal clear. And all of those people who have those conversations have to come forward because I think it would be a very, very damaging thing for the Office of the Attorney General, for the traditions of the Justice Department, to have the possibility, the appearance of impropriety here, that the president is picking someone for this job because he knows their views on an investigation that concerns him. That strikes me as a very, very damaging thing to the uh, impartiality of justice. You know, at the Justice Department, there is literally a figure of a woman blindfolded. (laughs) I mean, that is literally the mission of the Justice Department. So in other words, if in this meeting with Trump, Barr said, look, Mr. President, I'm not going to do this job now. I've got a bunch of reasons I can't do it. The investigation is bullshit, but I'm not your man. That would be a problem. (laughs) I think it would. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Last question before you go. Uh, You've written a couple of op-eds now with uh, George Conway, uh, husband of Kellyanne Conway. How'd you get hooked up with Conway? I think uh, he may have read something of mine about a year ago and um, reached out to me, and we just began a conversation. And uh, I've always had respect for him. Uh, he's a very prominent lawyer in New York. Um, I have to say, doing this over the last year, and, and particularly over the last few months, you know, I've been pretty sad about the state of our politics and uh, thought about compliance with the rule of law, our constitutional traditions, and the like. And Meeting him and having this relationship has really helped restore some of my faith in that because it really does underscore you can have people who disagree so much politically, and we do, I mean, you know, on almost everything. But there's still this core that we share, that George and I share, and that I think a lot of Americans share. It doesn't about party. It's about kind of our separation of powers, about doing what's right, about the truth being important about our public officials setting an example for all of us to aim higher. And, um, 
you know, that's how I've seen George live his life, and it's been really inspiring to me. The irony is uh, it's unclear whether you and George Conway would have come together like this had it not been for <laughs> Donald Trump. So in his own way, striking a blow for comedy and bipartisanship. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, on uh, Neil is silent on that. <laughs> he find a hard time to say anything positive about our president. But uh, anyway, uh, Neil, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Thank you. It's been a privilege. And now, straight from their latest grilling by Robert Mueller's prosecutors, Randy Credico and his dog, Bianca. Welcome back to Skullduggery. It's a uh, pleasure to be back. I'm not confirming or denying that I was grilled or we were grilled recently, but uh, we were uh, over the last <laughs> couple of months. Yeah. A, Everybody a number, wants to know. Yes. I, we feel honored here because we don't get very many crucial witnesses in the Russiagate uh, investigation as guests on Skullduggery. You're talking about Bianca, right? Yes. Um, well, Bianca. I think it's a, they probably have a joint, a joint defense, defense agreement. agreement. I'm just yes. going to say that. Yeah, yeah. we do. Uh, okay. She's got a defense fund, though. I don't. She's raised a lot of money for her I'm defense I'm sure she fund. could raise a lot more money yes. than you can. You know, I wish I were a defendant so I could raise some money. You know, I have a defense fund. If I were a defendant or a target. Well, Maybe I may end up being a target. You never know. Well, that's one of the issues we want to explore <laughs> on Skullduggery here. This has been going on for some time now, uh, for many months since. And we should explain, Randy, you're like a former radio talk show host. Right. You somehow, even though you're kind of a left winger, got hooked up with Roger Stone. Kind of uh, a left winger. <laughs> yeah. Bill Kunstler uh, was my godfather. Right. Yeah. And then from Roger Stone... To Robert Mueller, you have become a important key witness in the investigation, and a lot of people are scratching their heads. They can't figure out how does a Credico get end up with Roger Stone, and how does that lead to him being a, a principal figure in the Russia investigation? I, I suppose it would be like Bill Conser being mixed up with Roy Cohn. 40 or 50 years ago, somehow like uh, being yeah. involved in an investigation. Well, it, it started out because back in 2016, I had uh, a very successful radio show, WBAI, and I had some incredible uh, people on spanning the spectrum, including Roger Stone, who I had not spoken to for five years since he tweeted out that I was dead. When I had my radio, he started to be a regular on my uh, radio show the year of the election. At the same time, I uh, had Julian Assange on my show late in August 2016. Mm -hmm. So Stone and I had conversations and somehow having conversations with him, he wanted me to get information on a fellow by the name of Dr. R. Paul. This is on September 16, 2016. Dr. R. Paul. He's some Indian doctor who was close to the um, Libyan, Libyan uh, intelligence services, and Dr. Paul supposedly knew something about Hillary Clinton sabotaging the peace talks. And so he was trying to get me, just because he got me Gary Johnson on the show. He got me Gary Johnson. The former thought, presidential yeah, yeah. candidate All right, for so the Libertarian I, it was, he, Party. I was, yeah, I had Jill Stein on it. The same day that he got me on the show, he made that stupid gaffe about Aleppo. So he really wasn't worth much the next day. He really, like took right. himself out of the race as if he wasn't already. And so one thing led to the next, and we somehow got circumstantially, because I went to 
see Assange, but I didn't get in. You, you uh, went. You I, flew to I, London. I flew to London on yeah. September 27th. I let him know that I was going. He tweets it out right away. My good friend's going to London. Well, because of that tweet, I never got in to see him. Plus, he was probably preparing for the the dump that he eventually did. So I, I went to see Barry Crimmins, who's my close friend, and he died recently. A 30-year anniversary of our comedy tour in London in 1986. So it, it was a 30-year anniversary, and I got to see him for three days. And I flew back on the 1st. I got whacked out on the plane. First of all, I got totally whacked out because at the Heathrow Airport, the duty-free shop, you buy, but they also have bars at every, like the gin, the bourbon, the cognac. And I was so whacked. So on my way back, I sent them a text message. Big news. Yes. Uh, yes. Big all right. News yes. Wednesday. Yes. Yeah. Right. On October. Is that what you said? Yes. Right. Right. And then you went on to say no. Now, pretend you don't know me. Right. And Stone writes back, you died five years ago. Right. And then you write back, great. And then you write, Hillary's campaign will die this week. Now, Roger Stone is using those texts, your text, Hillary's campaign will die this week, as proof that you were his back channel to Assange tipping him off to the release of the Podesta emails, which is at the core of the Russia investigation right Right, now. Did Roger Stone have an inside track to what Julian Assange was going to do with emails stolen by Russian military intelligence? And those texts do seem to suggest you knew something. Right. Yeah, I know. I, I see that. You could assume that that day, that on the 1st of October, I got in to see Assange, in spite of what the evidence shows, you take a look at the logs, which were uh, released by the Ecuadorian government, I did not get in. He said on Hannity, I did not get in. I was there to see Barry Crimmins. The thing is, if people would just use logic, why would Julian Assange see a guy he's never met, had him on his radio show one time, to tell him that emails are coming out on Wednesday, make sure you tell Roger Stone. If there was any logic applied to this entire theory, you would know it was BS. So explain why you would have, uh, I mean, I know you were drunk at the time, but why would you have constructed that tweet and text message? Well, because he had been riding me over this Gary Johnson to get some information on this Dr. Paul. And I said I was going to, but I was never planning to see him. I was no chance I was going to see him. I had a note from the radio station from Bertolt Reimers to drop off at the embassy. It was like a scene out of the Adams Family thing coming out and pulling this envelope from Bertolt Reimers. And that was it. So I don't know why I put that out there. Assange had been teasing he was doing something uh, the first week in October, and it was just unlucky for me to send that to him, joking with him. If you take a look at all of the text messages over the previous six months, and if you take a look at his testimony, his testimony saying that I did this in June, this throughout August and September, if you take a look at it all, now the people who know if I was the back channel, are the people who I've seen in D.C. and in New York, and that would be the prosecutors uh, and right. the FBI agents that work All with right. Mueller. So, they would know. They are like Columbo, Detective Columbo and Hercule Perot combined. 
All right, so they will know. Let them sort it out. I'm all for them finishing their job. I'm not calling this a witch hunt. Let them finish well, their job spent, and sort it out. They have spent hours with you now. You've been before the grand jury. Yes. You spent, what, eight hours last week with uh, Mueller's prosecutors? I'm not saying if I was okay, there right. or how many hours Why? it was if well, I were there. Right. I'm pretty much not. You're a witness. So you're I'm a witness. You're, I understand that. Uh, yeah, but you know, I don't fact, want to. we know you were there. All right, so. Well, all right. Let's say I was there. Yes. Well, look. What are they they trying to prove at this uh, point? I think they're trying to figure out what Corsi did and those. Jerome Corsi. uh, Jerome Corsi and him putting out that text message, the Podestas. Now, Roger Stone, you tell him anything, that same day he's going to tweet it out. He has no willpower to refrain from sending out information that he has. That time that I said that I was going to London, he sent it out. On October 12th, the other information I gave him, which I got from several people that you know of, I said that Correa, the former president of Ecuador, was getting the heat from John Kerry during the peace talks in Caracas. That's it. And he tweets that out. So that led me to believe that this thing would course. I was telling people that was not the Podestas. That was Podestas. And I've been telling people that. Lo and behold, someone did tell him that. Let me ask you this, Randy, because Are you everyone. <laughs> you can't handle the truth. Okay, That's right. the damn truth. Go ahead. You know, everyone describes the Mueller operation as this black box. They don't leak. They're incredibly disciplined, focused. And we just don't learn that much about what he's got, except from the defense side from time to time. But you spent all this time in his grand jury. There must have been hundreds, if not thousands, of questions. What did you learn about the state of the investigation from the questions that they asked? What's the most interesting thing that you, when you walked out of that grand jury room, that you learned? Well, it's not just the grand jury room. It's, you know, several times I've sat down with them. Everybody knows that more than twice. What I've learned is that they're very professional, that they know what's going on. These are the types of people you want running an investigation. And I think at the end of the day, you're going to get the answers. You'll get the answers. Okay, but you I'm can't... talking about concrete well, I things think that a... you learned, like, you know, t- uh, well, if I tell you that, and uh, you know, then you'll have to kill me. Uh, no, if, I can't yes, handle the truth. I can tell you. I Bianca can tell you that. that. Yeah. they're <laughs> trying yeah. to figure out if, if I was the back channel, if Corsi was the back channel, if Stone had a back channel. I think a lot has to do with his testimony, which will be released January third. I mean, this is what I think. In all of the conversations you've had with Mueller's prosecutors, with FBI agents in the course of this investigation and their questioning of you, have you left this process thinking they have evidence that Roger Stone was coordinating in some way with Julian Assange and knew that these email dumps were coming? I don't think that they have evidence that he's dealt directly with Julian Assange. I don't or, indirectly. or indirectly. Or I don't know if they have that. I don't think so. It would be an unwitting thing by Julian Assange. Look, nobody got in to see him the entire month of September, leading September 6th till October 6th. Not one person got in but, there. But Take a look at the logs. But you were talking to one of his lawyers. Yes, but she sees a peripheral. There's 500 lawyers. Right. She, she wrote op-ed pieces, one op-ed piece, and they're more concerned about 
what's going to happen to him if he gets indicted. That's like, you know, working with other lawyers. You have the Center for Constitutional Rights, his right. big lawyer. You have uh, Alan was Dershowitz my- was one of his lawyers at the time. Michael Ratner, Garzone. There's so many lawyers. You're talking about one that's like the lowest, and she really was representing somebody else more than Assange and dealt with and they know it. This is, they, this is Bill Kunstler's Bill Kunstler's wife, my closest wife, friend. Right, and Roger Stone, wife. here's yeah. what he did, all right, which really infuriated me. He held that over my head. And there's a certain thing that happened with Stone a few months later because I told him about Mrs. Kunstler. And then he got into a phone call with her in December. He needed to talk to her about something else. I don't want to get into it. So they had he had a record of that call, and he told me that if I didn't go along with this, he was going to use her. He was blackmailing me. And you're getting me into saying stuff Wait, I don't want to say, go, that, that he was did, going go to put her name out. If I didn't go along with this testimony, didn't go along with this testimony, what did he, want he was going to say? bring her name into it. And that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to talk at all. One of the reasons why I took the fifth, one of the reasons why when they showed up at the left forum, some of the Mueller people to talk to me about some of these things that have been going on, some implied threats out there, I didn't want to talk because I knew Stone was going to throw her name into the mud there. And I got infuriated by that. And I decided to do it anyway because I had to clear my name because I am connected with Trump now. Here, a left winger like me, I am somehow indirectly tied into this goddamn Trump campaign as if I had something to do with Trump winning. So you got the Hillary people that hate me. You got the alt-right that hates me. Why do they hate me? Because I'm exposing the truth about Roger Stone. What did Stone want you to say? He wanted me to go along whatever his testimony was. Which was which that was you were either, the back channel. Yes, or just whatever it was, to either go along with it, take the fifth, did you get or the do your Frank Pantangeli. Randy, did you? Oh, I'd like to hear that in a second. But Randy, no, 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 no. I got to ask you a question right. first. Did you now get the I got to start. This is one thing I have did, to do now. I'm like Bogart in, uh, in Kane Mutiny. Right. Uh, the key was not imaginary. <laughs> and I don't know anything about mess boys eating strawberries. Now, there's no need for that. I know exactly what to tell you lies. No different from any other office in the wardrobe. They're all disloyal. I tried to run the ship properly by the book, uh, but they right. fought me in every turn. Let me just get this question in. Did you do with Mueller? All right. Yes, I, I got a serious yeah, question yeah, here, yeah. and then we can do the impressions no. for a couple yeah, of minutes because yeah. we got to go soon. But did you get the sense from the Mueller team's questioning of you that they were also looking at witness tampering or obstruction of justice? That, in other words, if Roger Stone was trying to get you to go along with his account, that sounds like it could be witness tampering. Well, all I can tell you is you've seen some selective emails and text messages by Stone out there. It's like told you Columbo saying, uh, Mr. Stone, I seen a couple of these uh, text messages. Uh, one thing bothers me. Where are the other 13? Oh, you're trying to delete them, huh? Uh, I got to tell you something that they have, have it, man. They have it. And if whatever he did, they got text messages, emails. They got all my emails, you know. So basically, I don't know where they're going with it. And if I did know, I, I really would not say. But... This is a very professional, thorough group of prosecutors. And I have said that let them finish the investigation, for better or worse. If I end up getting charged with something, so be it. But they have to get to the bottom of this. Did they get anything out of Bianca? Because Bianca seems like a very cruel witness to Uh, me. 
Yeah, Bianca is. Bianca's, you know, she keeps me when I go testify or I'm uh, for the record, in, she was in the grand jury. Yes, room with but you. nobody saw it, but she got in there. I have the not this bag, but I have a beautiful black bag, looks like an attache case, and I walk in the back way and we sit in the back and you know, she never barks. She's very quiet. What, as what you kind know. of dog is she? This is a Coton de Tuliar. I got her in Argentina in two thousand and six. Mm-hmm. So she's twelve years old. And uh, she's a, uh, they're, they're cotton dogs. And, and they are. But she to, goes with me all, and, and you know what? Somebody well, has threatened to, to steal this right. dog, you know. Well, it be, went beyond that. Didn't Stone threaten Bianca herself? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, what, what to steal tell, the dog. Re- refresh our yeah, recollection yeah, about what. Maybe goddamn dog away from you. And there's not a goddamn thing you can do well, about it. Talk about witness tampering. He yeah. probably knew that she was going to end up in the grand jury with you. Uh, she, yeah. uh, he can threatened I tell you to kidnap a grand jury witness. Yeah. It's not that I'm worried about him doing it, but, you know, there are a lot of nutcases out there. Really? There are nutcases <laughs> out there. You know, the guy in Pittsburgh, the guy with the pipe bombs. All of this stuff, uh, uh, there's, there are people out there that are crazy. All right. Yes. And uh, there are people who think that something happens to Stone. The Stone rolls on the president and let's get this thing out of the way and let's get Credico. I get nervous sometimes. Okay. Can we end on Frank Pantangelo? OK. He's Frank Pantangeli. Pantangeli. Yeah. Uh, wait, I'll split it in two. First of all, I got to do the Godfather and then Pantangeli. All right. My youngest son had to leave this country because of this Roger Stone business. <laughs> all right. I make necessary arrangements, claim of false charges of being a back channel. But I'm a superstitious man, and if something should happen to him on the sixth train on the way back to Brooklyn, I'm gonna blame some of the people in this room. Uh, I don't know no Roger Stone. Oh, yes! I was in the olive oil business with his father, but... That was a long time ago. The FBI guy say, give me something on Roger Stone. So I said, Roger Stone this, <laughs> Roger Stone that. But they were all lying. All of it. What were they drinking? <laughs> Champagne cocktails. Champagne cocktails. What are they drinking? Uh, you know my father did business with Hyman Roth. He respected him. Your father did business with Hyman Roth. Your father respected Hyman Roth, but your father never trusted Hyman Roth or that Sicilian messenger boy, Johnny Olo. A man right. had too much to drink. That's what he would have said at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Michael Corleone said, Credico had too much to drink. All right, uh, let, yeah, let, me, let me just end on this note, that yeah. if Roger Stone does end up getting indicted by Robert Mueller, one of the witnesses for the prosecution will be our skullduggery guest here. No, it's going to be Marlena Credico. Dietrich, man, not me. All right? That's all the right. witness for the prosecution. Tyrone right. Power. All right. Well, we are uh, all looking forward to the results Happy of the Mueller investigation. Happy all right? Okay. Yes, uh, thank uh, you for bringing that up. <laughs> thank you for bringing that up. That I'm going to be one of the witnesses. <laughs> Right. Well, right. thanks for Thank joining you, us on Skullduggery. Yeah. Thanks to Hunter Walker, Neil Kachal, Randy Credico, and Bianca for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. And be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you next week.